Lord be with you all. Grace and peace to you. And just like the prophet who was crying in the wilderness, we're going to learn about the prophet who was crying out to that great city, Nineveh, looking for the end of the story. (laughs) When will it end? Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That passage says that God has put eternity in our hearts, that we're longing for this understanding of how this all is going to work out. We have an urge to know what the end is going to be like. But for this very reason, God has not told us. He's put eternity in our heart because we aren't going to be able to know all the things that God knows. Instead, we're caught just in this moment. The end of the story has a twofold meaning. The end could mean that it's finished, it's complete, it's done the opposite of the beginning, or the end could mean the goal, the purpose, and the outcome that we're looking for. Either we could say the end is here, meaning we're finished, or the end is here, meaning we've reached the goal. Either way, or both ways, Jonah wanted to know what the end would be like. What's coming next? When is it going to be done? And what will it become? Why is God having Jonah go through all this? Jonah's looking to the end. Now, he's just experienced the end. A near-death experience getting swallowed by a fish for three days. And it was pointed out in Bible class that really Jonah's prayer is as much an expression of someone that's ready to die in the belly of the fish as anything So here's a man who nearly is dead for his disobedience, now revived. And so he's obedient. Arise and go. This is Jonah's revival. A new beginning and a new purpose. And so he goes. But why? Jonah's not just thinking about the message he's preaching, but he's already thinking about the outcome what the end is going to become. We'll be exploring this next week. When we get to that last chapter, Jonah's outcome obedience, how Jonah is obedient, but only on his terms in the end, looking for the outcome that he has envisioned for Nineveh. And so he comes preaching, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He comes preaching the end of the world for Nineveh. This is an apocalyptic preacher, someone who's coming, just like John the Baptist, saying that the end has come, the kingdom is here, and it's going to destroy this city. Anytime we confront our mortality, or anytime we face death, or feel hopelessness, or experience destruction or disaster, It's all bringing us to the end. It's what 
Bible scholars call eschatology a fancy word for the end stuff. Concerning the end, what will it be? And we need this because we have eternity in our hearts. God wants to awaken that, to that readiness, that the end could come at any time. And God's not just thinking about this momentary affliction that you might be going through or this choice that you reluctantly do not want to make, even though it's the right one to make. God is thinking about bigger pictures. He's put eternity in your heart. And that's what Advent is all about. The theme of Advent is to see the coming of Jesus as the end that God has imagined. The fulfillment of everything that he's been working for. It's, it's the finish of the Old Testament with all of its promises. And it's the goal that God would make good to bring his kingdom into our world. To reign among us. But of course, it's the means that he doesn't tell us everything about at first. The means of how he does this surprises us, and it shakes the whole city. Jonah found a city that was shaken by his preaching. Nineveh was an ancient city. The text says it was a great city. For hundreds of years, Nineveh was the largest city in the world. It was the Assyrian capital for an empire that dominated for hundreds of years of history, a military powerhouse. It was a beautiful city on the banks of the Tigris River with all of its artwork and advancements. It was a religious city with ziggurats that towered up to the sky where priests would climb to offer sacrifices to the sky gods. And it was secure. Great thick walls and huge beautiful gates fortified with resources and trade agreements and economic prosperity. What could bring this city down? This is what we find with the cities that we build. We build these cities and we show our attempt as humans to try to control this world. We tear down everything that's wild and we build up something manageable. We fortify it with walls. And so cities have always been a place of safety, a place where you can separate yourself from what surrounds you, the barren wild and the desert and the chaotic powers, which is why they used to always have one God for one city. That one God would watch over that one city because outside is where all the gods are doing battle. When you go out to war, when you have to work in the field, when you face the uneasy seas. But there in the city, we think we've got it figured out. We sit in these walls, protected with these great structures and skyscrapers and economic prosperities. We raise up governments trying to tame the wild. But these powers cannot be tamed. And even when we think we have it all under control, they find their way in under other disguises, politics, and personal vendettas. Nineveh was filled with evil ways and violence. 
And so eschatology, the looking at the end of all things, makes us confront this reality. Evil is here. And it has its way if we don't do something about it. It gets into our lives. It is messy. It is ugly. It is Nineveh. It is not out there. It's in here with all of us sinners trying to get along and not always doing so well. But that is where we find ourselves. And we don't get to choose the location. We can go there and here and all over, but God is going to put us in the place that he wants us to be. And that place might be as a father, as a mother, married or divorced or engaged, a family working a job, going to church, all of those things, but it's going to be in the place where God puts you. And Jonah didn't get to pick whether he liked it or not. Those were the people that he needed to love, the ones he had the most trouble loving. So Jonah has to accept it, to preach to them that they'll be overthrown with God's goals and minds. And he goes deeper and deeper into the city. A huge city it would take you three days to cover it. He goes deeper and deeper into Nineveh, seeing more and more people, more and more of what's going on, and doing more and more preaching, a day's journey in. Nineveh is that place where we least want to be, and we have to let God handle the outcome. The goal is to preach and to leave it to God. God has prepared Nineveh for this moment. And Jonah says there'll be 40 days. 40 is a symbol, a sign of testing. 40 means solitude. It means wilderness. It means temptation. It was 40 days and 40 nights that Jonah was in the ark, or that Noah was in the ark. It was 40 years that Israel was in the desert, wandering, waiting on God. It was 40 days that Jesus was tempted by the devil. They even have said, based on research, that for a person to break an addiction that is ingrained in their chemistry and in their brain takes six weeks, a 30-day program. And with those six weeks, it takes that long for the brain to unwind and to find new patterns. But how much more spiritually is this true for us, for Nineveh to have that time for them to repent? With fasting, with sackcloth, with ashes, it meant acceptance, it meant submission, it meant patience. The king orders the whole city to proclaim a citywide repentance from greatest to least. No one was excluded. And look at us. Look at our nation, the Gentiles. The word has come to us, too. And the end is always near. When we preach it or when we look around, it's, it's Nineveh. It's not Tarshish. Tarshish is to run away. 
to imagine there are dreams of delusion of something better around the corner. But Nineveh is to stay where you are, to accept the circumstances God has given you, and to repent, to fast, to dress down, and to live in the dust for a while. All of us are on the same page here, and the outcome is for God. God may relent, or he may not. They leave it up to God. Whatever the outcome, they do what they can to listen to the message. And the king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The word turn is repeated four times in those three verses. Turning for the people, turning from their evil ways and their violence, and turning for God, turning from his anger. There's a turning, them turning toward God, God turning toward them in meeting. That's where it happens. Because we can never forget God's character as it goes in chapter 4 to say, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. It is not his will that anyone should perish, and the only reason he brings these disasters, these threats, this wrath, is so that he can have us back where we belong in the place we're supposed to be. To come to the knowledge of the truth. And that's the end of the story for now, for Nineveh, for God and his goal. But it's not totally the end for Jonah. There's one more lesson that he has to learn next week. May God be so merciful to us and to all our enemies that he would accomplish his gracious will to relent from the disaster if it's possible. In his name, amen.